You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is Thursday, April 15th, which means today was the last chance you had to file your taxes. Oh, no. You forgot, didn't you? You were so screwed. The IRS is on their way right now. Run! You gotta run! They're gonna take everything! (laughs) I'm just kidding. They moved tax day to May 17th this year. But you should have seen your face. (laughs) You left your family behind. Man, they're looking at you real weird right now. Anyway, coming up on tonight's show, we meet the world leader who is driving an Uber. We learn why Canada is winning the Fashion Olympics, and we have the talk that every black family has to give their kids. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. I don't need to tell you this, but the news this week has been particularly heavy. I mean, even my meditation app had to unplug to focus on itself. But as we know, even during the most downbeat times, it is still possible to find a ray of sunshine. And that's exactly what we did. Let's kick things off with the Olympics. It's where people who sacrificed their entire lives to athletics compete to see who didn't waste their time. The Summer Games are on track to start this coming July in Tokyo. And today, we got our first look at the new fit. We're getting a look at what some athletes will wear at the Summer summer Olympics in Tokyo. Ralph Lauren unveiled these uniforms for Team USA. Russia is also showing off red, blue, and white uniforms. Check out Canada's (laughs) entry. They are set to wear these denim jackets for the closing ceremony. Designers say it captures Tokyo's culture. Okay, okay, say what you want about Canada's uniforms. I know people are making fun of it, but personally, I love it. I mean, I didn't even realize this year's Olympics were being hosted by Sunglass Hut. And they have so much personality. You know, I like a uniform that says, I'm from Canada, and they know me by name at Michael's. Plus, at least Canada's outfits are different. I mean, other countries' uniforms are boring, man. They all got the same sleek look. Only Canada had the guts to come out and be like, we're just gonna keep wearing the same thing we wore during the pandemic, eh? The only problem I have with Canada's uniforms if I'm honest, is that they're too relatable. Yeah, people at home will be like, hey, I have an outfit like that. Maybe I can do the shot put, but no, Jerry, you cannot. Curling, maybe, but nothing else. But for real though, I wish all of these Canadian athletes the best of luck at the 1992 Olympics. And speaking of national pride, here's a really fun, uplifting story. An Oklahoma cafeteria worker recently passed her U.S. citizenship test and was welcomed with open arms. It was a total surprise. And all these students lining the halls at Prairie Vale Elementary School in Edmond, Oklahoma, were in on it. (laughs) Celebrating their beloved cafeteria manager, Janet Lopez, this week, who had just passed the test to become a U.S. citizen. All the students give me hug. United USA was excited. I was crying like a baby, and the teacher were crying. Originally from Cuba, Lopez and her family moved to the U.S. in 2016 to seek a better life. When I was a child, I had a dream, like say Martin Luther King, <laughs> right? Yeah. My dream was come here to this great country. 
Oh, guys, that is so sweet. The whole school coming out, yelling at the top of their lungs in that narrow hallway. Congratulations! We got you COVID! No, but for real, but for real, this was a beautiful moment. I mean, you can tell the kids love her so much, you know? She must be one of those lunch ladies who ignored Michelle Obama and still counts pizza as a vegetable. And it's also inspiring to see this woman achieve her dream of becoming an American citizen. And she's also fulfilled these kids' American dream of getting out of class for 10 minutes. Do you remember what that was like as a kid? Just think back. Remember those days that you got where you got to do something that wasn't sitting in your classroom? It was the best shit ever. Like, I remember one time in school, we got to learn about photosynthesis outside in the sun, not in the classroom, outside. I remember as a little kid, I was like, this must be what doing heroin feels like. But let's move on now to the coronavirus pandemic. We are now more than one year into this thing, but it turns out there are still little rays of sunshine to brighten our daily routines. Like this 82-year-old woman who may be the last person in the country who is still having a good time on Zoom. Looking nice every Sunday since the pandemic began, Dr. Laverne Ford Wimberly dresses up in her Sunday best to attend her virtual church service. There she is with those fabulous hats. She's a retired educator from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Dr. Wimberly was already known for her head-turning outfits at the Metropolitan Baptist Church. Now she's uh, turning heads by posting a picture of her outfit every Sunday, sharing it on Facebook. Since the pandemic began, she's been very careful to not wear the same outfit twice. Wow. This lady puts everyone at church to shame. I bet she even sees a statue of Jesus and is like, huh, sandals again? I mean, maybe this is why the British royals are so hesitant about bringing black people into the family. They know. They know that black people are the only ones with a stronger hat game. And you know what? This lady inspired me. I'm not gonna let the pandemic get me down. I'm gonna cheer myself up by putting on a nice hat. Boom! Oh, yeah. Oh, I feel so much sadder now. How did that happen? Now, apart from avoiding Zoom, there are a few things that I know many people are looking forward to once this pandemic is behind us. You know, like hugging their grandmas, hugging other people's grandmas, or going to Disney World. And it looks like the newly reopened Disney is gonna be letting its hair down just a little bit more. Disney is updating its dress code for employees. The company will now allow appropriate visible tattoos and gender-inclusive hairstyles for the first time ever. The changes apply to employees at its theme parks in both California and Florida. It's part of a broader push toward inclusion and diversity. Now this, this is great to see. I'm glad employers are moving past the stigma of tattoos because people, there's nothing to be ashamed of. To most people, tattoos are a way to honor a person or to honor a belief or a night that they got drunk and got a tattoo. Although part of me thinks that maybe Disney World only did this because they had no other options. I mean, think about it. How hard is it to find someone in Florida without a face tattoo? Yeah, good luck on that one. Eh, uh, no, eh. The only thing that's gonna be a little awkward is when Goofy has to explain to the kids why he has all those Russian mafia tattoos. Don't ask goofy questions you don't want the answer to, comrade. <laughs> but if you ask me, this is still a huge step forward. People should be allowed to express themselves however they want. 
Unless you're on the Canadian Olympic team. Have some self-respect, people. What are those outfits? And finally, a story from Australia, where the toilets flush on the left side of the street, and where a recent mix-up over an Uber all worked out okay. A tipsy group of young people managed to get a lift with former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd after mistaking his car for an Uber. Mr Rudd had just dropped his daughter at a Noosa restaurant when the group piled into his car. He didn't let on who he was, but agreed to give them a lift anyway. Halfway through the journey, they discovered their driver was actually the former Prime Minister. Oh, guys, what a fun kidnapping story. And as awkward as that sounds, I think it's way better than the time a random Uber driver had to balance Australia's national budgets. What if we charged everyone surge pricing? My God, he solved it! And what if we gave everyone a free bottle of water? Oh, now we're broke again. Here's my alternate theory though. This ex-prime minister, I think actually is an Uber driver and just finally got recognized for the first time. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> you just got in the wrong car. Of course I'm not your real Uber driver. Things are going very well for me. <laughs> no worries, mate. None at all. All right, when we come back, we'll take a look at the conversation you never want to have with your kids, but might have to. So don't go away. Hey America, it's me, the My Vaccine Guy with exciting news. My Vaccine is now available in all 50 states of the greatest nation on earth. My vaccine is the vaccine for conservatives. You storm the Capitol, let my vaccine storm your capillaries. Just go to any vaccination site and say, hey, can I get my vaccine? They'll know what you're talking about. We'll give you one dose of my vaccine and throw in another dose 21 to 28 days later for free. Free. For free. For free. <laughs> Patriots, I guarantee that my vaccine does not contain a Bill Gates tracking device. Heck, you know my vaccine's conservative because it's Tucker Carlson's only remaining advertiser. Think of it this way. Every my vaccine that you get is one that a Rachel Maddow viewer doesn't get. What do you think about that, Lib? Suck it. Come on. Look, I'm not going to give you the science. Let's be honest. You don't like the science. I don't like the science. Whatever, just stick it in your arm. My vaccine is just the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine under a different name. Promo code I hate AOC does nothing. Do not wait, Patriots. Get the my vaccine. Please just get the vaccine. I want to go to the movies. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. It has been another week in America, which means it's been another week of black people being harassed or killed by the police. And by now, Everybody's aware of what happened to Dante Wright and Lieutenant Nazario. And although each incident ended very differently, they both began the same way. It's the same way that many of these encounters begin, with a traffic stop. And for black people in America, these traffic stops are scarier than any Jordan Peele movie. Driving while black. In many U.S. cities, police officers are pulling black drivers over at a much higher rate than white drivers. Black drivers are far more likely than white ones to have guns pointed at them by police, to be detained, handcuffed, searched, and arrested. Those blue and red cherries come on behind you. You all of a sudden get a tingle. Your heart starts to race, even when you know you've done nothing. And there is not a moment that goes by when police are uh, riding behind me where I don't fear being pulled over. The fear of driving while black is always present, even in life's happier moments. Like when Rona Vega's 18-year-old son, Teji, won a car on The Price is Right. It was so surreal. So much joy and excitement. And then reality set in. 
my 18 year old black Latino son does not need a car and what's going to be the problems that he's going to encounter. God damn. Think about how messed up it is that the only way a black person would be happy about winning a car on the prices right is if it came with a white person to drive it for them. I mean, no one should be afraid that they'll be killed because of something they won on the prices right. Other than maybe one of those pontoon boats. Those things are death traps. I'm pretty sure you're only allowed to drive them if you're drunk. But this just shows you how getting behind the wheel is a very different experience for black people in America. It's why Vin Diesel is always the main character in Fast and the Furious movies. You can't have Tyrese pulled over for a busted taillight when you're trying to drive out of a skyscraper. And you might be thinking, well, if you're so scared of being pulled over, then don't do anything wrong. Yeah, but let's be honest, people. America's laws always give the police an excuse to pull someone over. Oh, I think you were going too fast. I think you were going too slow. Oh, your seatbelt, your taillight, your license plate, your registration, not signaling, tinted windows. And nothing is more suspicious than someone breaking zero rules in their car. Ooh, cops will pull you over instantly. Sir, I couldn't help noticing that you were driving perfectly and that was a little suspicious, to be honest. Why don't you go ahead and pop the trunk? But it's not just traffic stops. Every encounter between a police officer and a black person is fraught with danger. In fact, there's something in black families called the talk. And I don't know if my white viewers know about this. I mean, maybe it's one of those things that black people do that you've never heard of before. You know, like laying edges or putting plastic bags on your Jordans when it rains. But believe me, every black family knows what the talk is. We call it the talk, a discussion black parents have had with their children for generations. A conversation that you and I have to have that, that it is tantamount to their survival. Alerting children about interactions with police where body language, tone of voice, word choice, and other factors in certain circumstances can lead to arrest or worse. At some point, you will get pulled over, and here is how you act. Put your hands on the the steering wheel. uh, Make sure the lights are on. Don't do anything without police uh, permission. Ask before you get your registration. You don't question and challenge the police officers like everybody else can. You guys just have to be a little wiser in terms of how you communicate and not agitate the situation any more than it is. Submit, obey, come home. The talk will always happen in black households. You have the talk about the birds and the bees, and then you have the talk about how to deal with law enforcement. That's right, police violence is such a threat that somehow the most uncomfortable talk you have to have with your kids is the one where you don't use the word semen. And look, I know that all parents talk to their kids about how to stay safe, but for black people, it's specifically about staying safe from the police, the people whose job is supposedly to keep them safe. The police talk simply isn't something that occurs in white households. I mean, if it did, it would be a very different conversation. Okay, now, honey, if you ever get pulled over by a police officer, what do you do? You look him in the eye and you say, do you know who I am? And then he'll apologize and he'll let you be on your way. And by the way, it's not like kids hear the talk when they're 18. The saddest part about this talk is that because police have a history of treating even eight-year-olds like adults who have committed heinous crimes, parents have to give the talk to their kids when they are extremely young. As a mom, I've always taught my children to, you know, be strong, say what you want to say. You know, there's freedom of speech, and I'm telling you to do just the opposite. I hated to have that with a 10-year-old, but 
I gotta do what was necessary. Eight years old, you didn't think that was kind of young for it? Oh, I absolutely think it's young, um, but not too early. We've talked about it ever since he became about four and a half feet tall. <laughs> so it's been years now. If you wait until somebody is 12, 13, and 14 to put that on them, it's it's really, it can be really difficult. It's definitely wrong that we have to go through this, but also like we have to remember we have to take it in stride if we want to get to where we want to be in life. If uh, I don't listen and understand, I could pro potentially be one of those in a video. We actually have a line that we do at our house. We practice this thing. What is it? I'm Ariel Sky Williams. I'm eight years old. I'm unarmed and I have nothing that will hurt you. An eight-year-old girl, people. What's even more wild than an eight-year-old having to memorize a script to interact with the police is the fact that a fully grown armed and armored police officer would feel threatened by an eight-year-old girl. I can tell you, I haven't felt threatened by an eight-year-old since I was like, I don't know, 15. I was a very small child. You know, when you think about it, Black people have more education around policing than actual police. Like, no cop starts training at eight years old. I mean, maybe kids play cops and robbers, but that's actually terrible training, you know? Because I've never seen a cops and robbers game that ends in a peaceful arrest. Yeah, they're just raining pew, pew, pews all around the neighborhood. So, we know that Black people know what's at stake and have methods of how to handle being pulled over by the police. But the talk still hasn't been able to prevent police violence against black people. So maybe it's not black people who need a talk about how to act around the police. Maybe, just maybe, police need a talk about how to act around black people. All right, when we come back, I'll be talking to an Oscar-nominated director about the war no one is talking about. So don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My guest tonight is Sky Fitzgerald. He's here to talk about the Oscar-nominated short documentary that he directed called Hunger Ward. It's about children in Yemen who are facing the worst famine in human history and the healthcare workers who are fighting to save them. Sky Fitzgerald, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm so happy to be here, Trevor. And I have to tell you, a South African friend of mine said I should say, dislaka to start off with. <laughs> so I hope I got that right. That should mean like it's cool, right? No, you have just cursed my entire family and generations to follow. That's what you have done. Um, yes, no, you did, you did say it pretty well, actually. Um, this lekka, which means um, things are good. Um, the reason you're on the show is because you have been nominated once again for an amazing documentary short that you have put together. And once again, it is, it is a story about something that is taking place in one of the most harrowing situations in the world right now, and that is in Yemen. Um, some people might hear about Yemen, they might hear about Saudi Arabia, the US, et cetera, but what exactly is happening on the ground right now? Well, um, there was a civil war that started in, you know, 2014, um, and Saudi Arabia intervened very quickly uh, in that war, mostly with a bombing campaign over the north of the country. And since then, there's been an air and sea blockade over uh, most of the country, preventing foodstuffs medicine and diesel from flowing freely in the country. And this has resulted in what's known as a human-caused famine. So the fighting's going on on the front lines, but really the, the largest effect of the, of the conflict is starvation, 
frankly. It's the largest humanitarian um, disaster in the world at the moment. And uh, 100,000 people have already died of starvation. And it's estimated that another 400,000 could die by the end of the year um, if the status quo doesn't change. And, you know, that's, that's 75, every 75 seconds, a child would die. It's a, it's a really grim um, milestone that, that, that Yemen is racing towards. And I think a lot of people would ask the same question, which would be, how is this happening? What, what, you know, where's the United Nations or where are other countries? And how are half a million people going to starve to death without getting any help? There's this film that was done in 40, 1946, right after World War II, called Seeds of Destiny. And I'd never heard of it before, but it's, it's, it was a short doc that actually won the Academy Award that year. And it focused on the effects of World War II on children. And so there's these shots of like kids, you know, uh, scavenging through garbage dumps for food. And right. right now, children in Yemen are scavenging leaves for food sometimes. And, you know, Nazi Germany used starvation as a tool as a weapon of war. And that's exactly what's happening in Yemen right now. Saudi Arabia is throttling the country, preventing foodstuffs from flowing in um, in a reasonable manner, and it's killing children. And the kicker is that our tax dollars are going to fund that. We're providing geopolitical cover for Saudi Arabia, um, and we're tacitly endorsing the blockade by not calling them out and forcing them to end it. So it's a quite horrible geopolitical dynamic that the U.S. is in right now. And we're calling for the Biden administration to unilaterally withdraw all support for the Saudi coalition. Your film has showcased a really interesting aspect of what is happening in Yemen. And um, the film is entitled Hunger Ward. And you take us through the journey, primarily through the lens of two healthcare givers two nurses and doctors who are looking after people in Yemen who have nothing and they're trying to keep them alive. And I mean, it's, it's truly the most against all odds story that you could come across, but you're there and you, you, you're filming these stories and, you, and you're talking to these people. The first part of my question is, how are you getting this access? Because I mean, nobody can really be in Yemen. And secondly, why did you choose to tell this story? Yeah, well, you know, to answer that first one, I, I thank you for doing a segment on Yemen here because um, part of the problem is that there's not enough focus on it, frankly, because access is so difficult. You know, it took us over eight months to get permission to, to uh, enter the country uh, because there's basically a journalistic embargo over the country enforced primarily by Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis. So, you know, first it took us that long to get permission. And then once we were there, of course, it was, you know, it was a conflict zone. So we had to operate very, very carefully in order to, you know, uh, make sure we came back with the story, but didn't endanger any of the people we're collaborating with um, either. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm uh, one of the things that I'm really uh, believe in deeply is that I think in the media sort of ecosystem, typically we're, we're far too timid um, and concerned with offending or shocking audiences. Um, and, and, you know, my view is that if you have the full consent and collaboration of, of those you're working with, and it's mm -hmm. truly a, a collaborative effort, then you really do them a disservice as well as your audience if you turn away, if, if you flinch, if, if you cut away. And I think that discomfort that comes with looking at something really difficult is really important because if we keep looking, then we can see it clearly 
And, and frankly, I think it should be uncomfortable to, to see children that are facing starvation. But we need to see and we need to look at that child in order to engage, right, and to engage civil society to change that current dynamic. One of the difficult lines you have to walk as a filmmaker, though, is figuring out how to tell a story that everyone around the world should at least pay attention to or understand, and also not be in the position where you're essentially creating poverty porn. That's now, right. You, you, you've been applauded for the way you've covered, um, the, the, you know, the war in Yemen. You've been applauded for the way you've covered the, 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 the refugee crisis, you know, along that region of the world. And, and I wonder how you've managed to walk that line, you know, whether, whether it's your subjects, whether it's some of the people you've worked with, whether it's the viewers. Many have said, oh, this doesn't feel like I'm made to feel sorry for the people, but rather to understand the plight that they're going through. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I, I, I think, you know, cinema should be a force for good. Um, and I think it can be an empathy machine, to use Robert Ebert's words, you know. And, and I think in order to do that when the context is so difficult, when, when the scale, you know, the stakes are life or death, you know, you have to, to work from a foundation of trust and you have to, in every act, um, provide dignity for those you're working with. That's the only way to do it. Um, you know, I, I never could have done this project if, um, if I didn't have the, the deep trust and collaboration of everyone in each one of these clinics and hospitals. And, and you know what, Trevor, that took time. Right. You know, that took time and trust and it was dynamic and we had to listen and we had to pivot and we had to alter course and evolve our approach constantly based on what was happening and, um, and whether families wanted us to show something or not. And the thing that surprised me personally was in this particular project where the scenes are so intimate sometimes, um, almost to a T, every single family we worked with wanted us to show every stage of treatment that their child received, wow. regardless of outcome. Even when a child passed away, the family sort of almost pled with us sometimes to do our best to include it so that the rest of the world would know that their child had just died because there's an embargo over the country. And they feel like that's the only way that the status quo can change. So we were moved by that. And with that sort of intimacy came sort of, I felt like a burden of responsibility, right? To really execute the project with as much dignity as I could. This film is essentially part of a trilogy that um, tells the story of what is happening in that region in the world. You know, the first was, was about um, Syrian doctors treating civilians in, in, in the war. The second lifeboat was about those who have tried to flee, you know, um, to, to, to the Mediterranean and, and to surrounding areas. And this third one, Hunger Ward, is, is about what's happening when people are trapped literally within their own demise and they can't seek a better life. What do you hope the U.S. or even people on the ground in the U.S. could do and why should they do something? Yeah, well, the good news is we can do something and we are doing something. And, and if, if I'm thrilled by anything with sort of the movement the film is a part of, it's that because this is a, a human-caused tragedy that's unfolding right now, we can intervene on it. And especially as Americans, um, we can stop the blockade by forcing Saudi Arabia to... Um, open up the airport in Sana'a, in the north of the country, to allow the free flow of goods and services uh, through the port of Hodeidah, where diesel isn't flowing freely. And I, as, a, as an American who's seen this with my own eyes, 
I feel a deep obligation to make sure that my taxpayer dollars aren't funding the starvation of children. So really, you know, the good news is there is this movement. It's a, it's a coalition of more than 70 lawmakers that signed a letter last week urging the Biden administration to unilaterally withdraw all support for the Saudi blockade. Hollywood's getting involved. Um, you know, Ruffalo has spoken out on this consistently. Uh, Nick Kristoff, you know, the intrepid journalist, speaks right. out. Apatow. People are really starting to create a momentum for this because we have to stand up and we have to change it. Well, hopefully the film is the first step. Congratulations on documenting the journey. And uh, hopefully, to, to your point, something will get done. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And yeah. uh, take care. Thank you. Don't forget, Hunger Ward by MTV Documentary Films is available right now on Paramount+. Plus. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, please consider supporting Hunger Ward's efforts to assist the Yemeni clinics featured in the film. Together with their nonprofit partner, Globio, Hunger Ward is helping healthcare workers in those clinics provide vital care to children who are facing extreme malnutrition. So please, if you can help out in any way, go to the link below and donate whatever you can. Until next time, stay safe out there, wear a mask, get your vaccine, and remember, be kind to your Uber drivers. You never know when they could raise your taxes. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.